Hi, I'm Cody Goff. In this episode of Game Life Balance US, I sit down with Elliot Callaghan. He makes music for video games, among many other things, as you will hear. Elliot joins me to talk about an exciting new project called Unlock Audio. It's a tool for reframing game audio to make it developer-centric from both a creative and a business perspective. We also talk about game design education, sound design in general, and of course, what video games we've been playing lately. This is episode 59 of the Game Life Balance US podcast. I'm SP from the GuineaGeek.com show, a weekly geek news podcast that is part of the GuineaGeek.com network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other amazing geek shows at GuineaGeekNetwork.com. I'm sitting down with someone with all the titles. His name is Elliot Callaghan. He's a composer and sound designer for media and an adjunct professor at DePaul University and a lieutenant in the Army National Guard. Yes. Well, I got the all right. I'm busy. <laughs> yes, seriously. <laughs> um, we talked once on the Curiosity Podcast, which is another project that I was involved with for a very long time. And lots of people listen to it. And you talked about composing video game music, essentially, really, and doing sound design for games, right? Yeah. So you're a media composer. So for those listeners who didn't hear us on that podcast about a year and a half ago, uh, talk a little bit about what you do here in Chicago at DePaul University and then what you do on the side with all your other composing. Okay. Um, well, first, can I just thank you again for talking to me a year and a half ago? <laughs> it was really fun and it was really nice of you and, I, and I'm very appreciative and glad that we get to do it again. So thank you for having me come by again and hey. in the first place. Well, thank you. No, it was my pleasure. It was, it was a really good conversation. Um, so at DePaul, I teach in the film and game programs, although um, just because of allotment of different skill sets, I find myself teaching more and more game audio focused courses there. Um, but a lot of them are introductory because Game Sound 1, Film Sound 1, those are courses that every single film or game a student has to take. They have to be at least aware of what's going on in the realm of audio. Um, but now I'm teaching more of the advanced game audio classes, such as Game Sound 2. Um, I'm also teaching game audio implementation. So not only how do we make the audio files, but then how do we actually put them into the game engine itself and, and make them play when you want them to play and play in the way that you want them to play. Um, it and that also informs a lot about how you create the assets for game audio as well. Um, there's a whole bunch of, I guess you could say, pragmatic and logistical concerns about making something seamlessly loopable because you, know, you may be in the same area or doing the same thing for 15, 20 minutes and the music is going to stay the same. So how can you create the audio file so if you loop it, there's no noticeable hiccup? And at the same time, create something that is interesting and engaging for 15 minutes plus. I thought you were going to say 15 to 20 hours. That too. <laughs> <laughs> because legitimately, I've been playing an MMO, massively multiplayer online RPG, and I that involves a lot of grinding and a lot of repetitive being in the same place kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you take only one to two minutes of musical content? and make it seem as if it's an ebbing and flowing score similar to linear media like film. 
So when did you join DePaul in in this role and start teaching game courses? What did the demand look like? Was there like a job posting that's like, we need to start teaching people how to compose for games? So I got insanely lucky. Um, <laughs> well, first I went to DePaul for uh, my master's, which is how I initiated that relationship. And I had nothing but great experiences while I was there. Um, I had to go away for a while for military commitments, but then when I came back, I had stayed in touch with a professor there whose name is Rob Steele, who's kind of the head of everything audio um, in the College of Computing and Digital Media. And we were just good friends, and I had emailed him saying, hey, I'm coming back from being away for months. I'd just love to catch up and see you. And then he emailed me back, basically, do you want a job? (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what happened. I think maybe someone had committed to teaching courses that then couldn't meet those commitments later on or, or you know, the universe works in crazy, mystical, ridiculous ways. And uh, he just needed someone to teach an intro film sound class. And I'd never taught at the college level before, but you have to have a master's in order to be eligible to teach at that level at DePaul. Um, so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I said yes. And it was... It was fun. It was intimidating. It was really intimidating the first time I got up there. Had you not thought that you would ever teach? I I always entertained the idea. Like, yeah, it'd be fine if I taught. But I never had given a thought to, I guess, actually seeking it out and it actually happening. It was always like, oh, yeah, if it happens, it's cool. Yeah. It's fine. And then it actually happened. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I've been in front of a platoon of... 60, 70 soldiers and not been intimidated. And I'm in front of like 24 college kids and I hope they think I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So it did happen and it was cool. And so had you already been designing sound for video games at that time or did that come after you started teaching? I had worked on some uh, school projects during DePaul. While I was at, at DePaul, they did not have a specific music for media program um, in the College of Computing and Digital Media. So I essentially contacted every single professor of all of the classes, all of the more advanced classes, and just said, I just want to offer to write music for everything that all of your students are making. Um, so I think I came out of DePaul with something like 50 different projects that I had worked on outside of my classwork just because... I wanted to. Most students don't even do all their homework. That's the attitude you got to have, man. If you want to do this, like, yeah, you just got to go for it. You've got the right attitude. Do you try to impart that on all your students? All the time. All the time. People talk about game jams and going to game jams, which is essentially, you know, a 48-hour film fest. Think of that for games. Like You have 48 hours and a team and you make a game. And uh, people will announce that they're participating in one and I after they're done I take a second and say all of you need to do this maybe not necessarily this one but you have to go to the next one because this is how you actually get your foot in the industry this is how you get pieces for your portfolio this is how you meet people plus it's just an awesome time yeah so, sounds like a party so you don't really so it's a low bar a low barrier of entry to participate in a game jam. You pretty much can just kind of apply, get thrown on a team as long as you have some skills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, the game community is also really fantastic in that they're very welcoming and helpful. Um, you mean the game development community? Yes. The game development community. Cause I know the players aren't always so great. Depending on what specific niches you go to, 
that that's a dark rabbit hole. We don't need to go there. But <laughs> no. but the game development community is just really welcoming and open. And, and if you're just transparent and say, look, this is what I know. Um, I'd love to help how I can. They're immediately going to say, awesome. This is great here. Like, let me teach you some other stuff. And then let's tackle these problems together, which is another reason why I'm just really excited about games. That's really cool. Does DePaul ever host any game jams or are there any local ones in Chicago that come around often? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple different game jam events that I know DePaul's affiliated with. Um, there's also a organization called Indie City Games, which is a monthly independent game developer meetup. And just all these people that either do it professionally or as a hobby just get together and they'll have one or two lecturers give a presentation about anything in the realm of games. I've, I've spoken there. Um, and I've just been in the audience tons of times. And then afterwards, people have different games that they're working on, and they just set them up, and then you play, and you have a discussion about how this can be better or some of the problems that you're having in development at this point. And then it just becomes this really great, supportive community, and everyone just gets enriched by being involved with everyone else's project. I actually went to one Indie City Games meeting. It would have been three or four years ago. I mean, it was a while back. Uh, and my buddy Sam goes. Sam is a video game attorney. Um, Sam Castry, ace attorney on Twitter. He, um, uh, he's he been on actually this podcast before, Game Life Balance. I had him on, again, it was like two or three years ago. But mm-hmm. he, he he does video game property law, copyright law, trademarking, all that, all that stuff that is very important and probably too often overlooked by people when they're when they're looking to legally make a video game but he goes to those and and yeah the one that I went to they somebody presented on on a game over time you know we talked about well here's the concept we have here's what we started to do here's why it didn't work here's why we pivoted over here and now we're going for this kind of ambiance and it was, it was a really cool inside look at like how a game can change over time and I think I've even seen I saw in my inbox one of the Indie City Games emails that said, oh, Elliot Callaghan is going to be a speaker. And, and I looked at it and I was like, oh, I can't make it to that one. But. No. Too bad. <laughs> Would have been awesome to see you again. Yeah, well, and, and thank you. And the um, the first time I was made aware of you, I guess, was actually because you spoke with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, that was about a year and a half, two years ago? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah, so um, I know we're kind of um, uh, twisting and turning a little bit, but I, I liked getting on this information on your background and... and and game design, game development. I'm, I'm imagining a lot of people listening to a, uh, you know, an interview with a professor who teaches a lot of video game audio stuff that they might be curious about uh, how to get more involved as well. So, uh, what was your CSO talk about? So that was about creating the musical aesthetic for games. So I know we talked a little bit earlier about some of the, I guess I'll call logistical considerations, such as making things seamlessly loopable and whatnot, but. This talk was, um, again, also geared for a traditional symphony orchestra audience. So it was focused on more of the abstract, creative, how do we express this game or this game world musically? Um, And so I kind of compared that with um, how someone writes for a traditional concert stage, ensemble, or orchestra, how that relates to writing for games. And then I talked about a couple of the games that I had written music on at that point and kind of my process for, for approaching each of those, which were, which were very different between all three of them, which I think is another fantastic thing about games is that the process ebbs and flows and it's, it's never the same. It was cool seeing, I think that talk is on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, great. So I'll include a link to that in today's show notes. Show notes. And you have, do you have a link on your website too? Uh, yes, cool. yeah. If you just go to my website, 
um, Romova Music, R-E-M-O-V-A music.com. Go to video games and then it'll be one. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great it's a great multimedia site. It's it's on my screen right now and you have a video playing in the background. So I'm getting all these flashes of like horror movies, first person shooters, and I have another website open that is also yours that I really want to talk about. So you teach all this game design stuff and you work on a lot of different things and now you've got a new project called Unlock Audio. Yes. What is that all about? So Unlock Audio is well, let me back up a little bit. So since I um, graduated and came back from military commitments, I was pursuing music and sound design in, in essentially all mediums. While I was on base, actually, in my free time is when I started getting interested in game audio implementation because I had all this background on writing music, producing it, creating sound design assets for film and whatnot. Um, and I'd, I've just always just been a big nerd like I, I just have like i played world of warcraft for 10 years was a raid leader like in early bc for those who play wow they'll know what that means i um, should have included that in your title at the beginning <laughs> raid raid leader of karazhan <laughs> yes former raid leader of karazhan yeah yeah um but um so i had this interest and i had a time when i was just away and during that free time I just had, I was just, you know, very motivated. Like I got to use this to my advantage. I don't want to just, with the free time I have, just be watching TV because luckily I was an officer at that point, a hotel room, which was was mind blowing to me because I was prior enlisted. So I was expecting barracks, you know? Right. And then I walk into a hotel lobby. Am I in the right building? (laughs) Is this? They're like, yeah, stay here now. I'm like, this is incredible. Anyways. Nice. um, So in my free time, I started going through online resources for this piece of audio middleware called Audio Kinetics Wise. Audio Kinetic is the company that develops it. And it essentially makes programming and implementing audio much more digestible and, and friendly for audio people. Um, so if you are a programmer, I don't think it would make much sense to use it because you're used to programming languages and, and working in that that space. But for someone who doesn't know programming languages, aka me, this allows you to program by creating an interface that's very friendly for audio folks. So taught myself that and then began teaching at DePaul in the film program, mentioned at a staff meeting that I actually knew game audio implementation, um, at least using this middleware. And they said, you should teach class on this because we want to expand our game program. And I said, yes, that would be incredible. so taught that, was still pursuing basically all types of media opportunities. But because I've been getting more involved in games both at DePaul and as well as outside of DePaul, I decided late last year that I wanted to focus primarily on game audio. And uh, my wife works in design and innovation. So she's just basically a really, really smart person <laughs> is what that boils down to. Um, like someone will say, you know, we, we need to you know, make our website better. And she'll come in and one of the first questions that she'll ask is, I need a website. So she's very like high level macro sort of let's analyze this stuff. Um, So I played the husband card (laughs) and and (laughs) said, can you give me the husband discount and like do what you do for game audio? And so we went through a process where I um, put her in touch with a ton of game developers Uh, We analyzed a ton of audio professionals that I thought were doing a really great job of being 
game audio professionals in one way or another. So we looked at what are they doing that works? Why are they successful? We looked at a ton of different game developers and how they treat audio, whether it's a large component of their game, whether it's small, whether they have in-house audio folks, whether they contract it all out, how that all works. And then we had in-depth interviews with a number of game developers as well, both folks local here to Chicago and also remote video calls and whatnot, which I was not a part of. She asked all the smart questions and didn't want me to be a part of be a part of them because she wanted her outside perspective and all of that to guide the conversation. So how did she get access to all that information? Is it publicly available or did she just have to ask every company? I mean, I've just been pursuing game opportunities for so much on my own that a lot of this information I just had already. Oh, okay. From just me saying, I want to get more involved in games. Who do I want to work with? How do I work in this industry? So a lot of that I had already. So sent her a big spreadsheet. <laughs> okay, nice. So she had a little head start. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then after after that, we consolidated all that information, and then we began to pick apart patterns from all of this information. So uh, the main three patterns that we saw were that most teams, especially smaller, independent, and mid-level teams, just wanted to have one person or company that they go to and just takes care of all of their audio. Like that's music, that's sound design, that's Foley, that's anything and everything, even implementation. They they have plenty on their plate. They don't want to work, worry about that as well because that's not their realm. Um, secondly is that a lot of the ways in which audio is presented and framed is kind of grandfathered from linear media, um, which doesn't necessarily make sense for games if you're working in a, I mean, it's a nonlinear format most of the time. So Right, because you're not just going from point A to point B in a video game. You can explore, you can go travel wherever you want to. In certain games, you can do different quests or different activities in different orders. That's what you mean by linear? Yeah, well, and, and even if it's linear in the sense that you go from point A to point B, you can't predict that the player is going to go from point A to point B in the same amount of time in the same way. Right. Um, so it's a, it's very different, but a lot of the ways in which companies still frame things are like, per minute of or per sound effect of. And that makes sense for film because you can reliably predict that. With games, you, you can't really. Um, and then lastly, uh, there seem to be two camps of people uh, in, in game development. Those that said audio is amazing and incredible and I love it and it can actually make up for a lot of terrible design mistakes or other mistakes that we've made elsewhere in the game, which... No, it can't. <laughs> audio, audio exaggerates everything else that's there. So it either makes things that are good seem really good or it makes the things that are bad seem really bad. Um, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> so there, there are the folks that have that attitude and then there are folks that say, you know, audio is just a thing that we want to go away. Like it's not our focus. We don't really care about it. Um, so that's an opportunity to educate those people and say, look, look at all it can actually do to you or do for you and your project. Um, so we synthesized, took all that stuff, and we created this unlock system where instead of, um, say, pricing things by per sound effect um, or per minute, because then it comes into so many questions of, well, how, what if I don't like the sound effect? Do you, are you then like charging me for the next sound effect? How many iterations can you do? Is there an iteration limit? Um, what if the game scope changes? Because game scopes and, and development, it always changes. It never goes totally to plan. Um, so... That's why that one game took eight years to come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or multiple games take eight to ten years to come out. Yeah, no kidding. Um, 
So taking that into account, instead of saying it's per sound effect per minute of music, we say, all right, well, how many characters do you have? How many locations or levels do you have? How many menus or interfaces do you have? Um, how many cutscenes do you have? And then what promotional materials do you need? And then someone just tells us, all right, we have two characters. And then we need to scope out and figure out how to really create this character that we have. Like we don't really know how to create an audio identity from them. Then after that, we need to actually create those assets. And then finally, we need to implement all of that stuff. So we would go to them and say, are oh, you have two characters? We don't need any other information. It's this percentage of your game done. It's totally transparent, straightforward, makes it accessible for teams of all sizes, and it treats everyone fairly, which is, I know, a big thing in the game industry right now, especially for larger companies and a lot of questions that people have about certain practices out there. So so Unlock Audio is a tool for for budgeting or budgeting and executing the actual sound design? So it's for educating on what needs your game has in terms of audio. So okay. if a team just doesn't have audio experience whatsoever, this will help them figure out, oh, th this is what needs to happen for us to have successful audio in our game. And at the same time, this is a reliable and straightforward way for us to actually budget for it um, so that it's totally reliable and straightforward. If game scope changes... Um, you don't have to go through 40 emails with all of the different sound people to figure out what it's going to cost in order to make all of the changes. It's just, it's just this percentage of your game development budget done. But at the same token, it's not purely based only on um, a game development budget that is constantly ebbing and flowing, um, especially if you have something where you realize that you know, the animations aren't working and so you're going to put more time and effort into the animations. I don't feel like that affects audio in any way so that wouldn't affect any audio like pricing or work at all but if game scope does change and you add say like two more locations or, or levels or whatever it happens to be for the format of your game um, if it affects the audio work then that would actually change into being part of the overall budget that's used to calculate it so it's again if if someone is trying to actually plan an entire campaign and manage a team, it makes things ultra straightforward, completely predictable, and it frames it in ways that are developer-centric because very early on, people can tell you or at least have a pretty good idea of how many characters and locations or levels that they have. But if you ask them, how many sound effects assets do you need? Yeah. Why would they? It's way too early and they're not audio people. So I just clicked around on the website a couple times Super straightforward, very clear. Clearly someone with a design background put this together. Great design background. And you just go to unlockaudio.com. It's got a few quick screens that kind of tell you the 101. And so in case you forgot all of this and you didn't feel like rewinding or whatever, uh, you need a refresher later on after you've listened to this episode, um, you can go to Unlock Audio and, uh, and you click a few things and then you can enter a development budget and it kind of gives you a hypothetical breakdown of the different portions like you talked about, like cinematics, characters, levels, inter interfaces, menus, things like that. Um, then you can kind of kind of plan it out from there. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. I'm also excited because I'm partnering with the uh, sound designer for Harper Light Drifter, Akash Thakar. He, he was a really great help in putting together this system. And so we're kind of hoping to 
to take this thing and find some teams that it makes a lot of sense for, which I think is a lot of them. Yeah, so this uh, this is brand new pretty much, right? Yeah, I the I want to say it just went live last week. Wow. Hot off the press. Yeah, so the timing on this is great. Thanks again for having me over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad. I think we were supposed to originally do it like a week ago too, so this is even better. Yeah. Now I'm glad I pushed it back. Yeah. This is really great. Have you have you run it by your students yet or done anything with the classroom with it? Not in the classroom, but I took it to the Game Developers Conference, which was last month. GDC. Mid, yeah, yeah. And essentially all of the indie and mid-level teams that we showed this to said, yeah, why doesn't everyone do it this way? <laughs> like, I don't know. Hopefully we're, I think we're, I think we're on the cusp of changing how game audio is done, like professionally, just because it's a lot more straightforward and simple and easy for everyone. That's a, that's a pretty big statement. I think, I think, yeah, what I think. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you've been doing this. I, I, you, do you have any time to compose anything or do game design, sound design on the side? I, I keep saying compose, but it, sound design is all-encompassing. You're doing sound effects and music and sometimes just like ambient kind of music, which requires composition, but in like a very different way. So, usually, well, and this, this is another thing, is a lot of audio people tend to live in their composing world and or their sound design world so there are a lot of people that like to only do one or the other and and then there's even a third one which is audio implement um, so being able to do all of them makes things really really simple but when i say composing yeah that's the music realm when i say sound design that is you can most of the time think of that as everything besides actual music that you hear in a game and then implementation is like an engine itself but um, yeah i'm still writing all the time. Um, I'm still doing some linear media stuff. Like there are a couple music libraries I still write for, um, but primarily working in games. Like right now I'm working on a Western themed card combat game, which is really fun. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. Yeah, yeah. I remember in our last conversation, you get to do so many different genres. You, you were doing something with kind of like, a, uh, I don't remember if it was like a Middle Eastern kind of bent for like a pirate game. Uh, maybe it wasn't Middle East. It was more like, Celtic, maybe Irish. Yeah, yeah. If it was, I think you're thinking of uh, boats, high sea scramble. Yes. And uh, yeah, they the the main theme had a Celtic feel to it. I remember the feedback that they were sending me was that I had an orchestral, like very jaunty, adventurous sort of thing at first, and they said, "Well, we've been listening to a lot of Celtic tavern music. Here's some links." And then from that, I said, "Well." If what I have is working, but they want a Celtic feel, how can I do that and and get the idea across of a tavern? So I added another section to the piece that was toned down instrumentation. So it's just like a guitar and some drums as opposed to a whole orchestra, because a whole orchestra would never fit in a bar, right, for right. performance. And then for the section that I had, I added Ulean pipes, which... Again, I'm not totally certain on the history of Ulean pipes, whether that is a Celtic instrument, but I'm going to go with it because it feels Celtic to me. So, yeah, I, I added that to give it the Celtic feel to relate to the tavern. And once I had all of that feedback combined with what I originally wrote, it turned into what they ended up using. Yeah, that's really cool. You get to work in all those different genres. So you've still got some time to do that. In your all that free time that I'm sure you have after developing this and teaching, and so you're still an active lieutenant in the Army National Guard. Yep, yep. Although now I'm in a public affairs unit, so kind of um, 
thinking about how to best tell the Army's story and how to, to interface with adjacent communities wherever we are. I think you should make a video game. You know, I, I actually ran into some folks that make military simulations at GDC. Um, and the nice thing, too, is that a lot of them need security clearances for you to work on any of their projects. And I was like, I got one of those. So wow, that might be in the future. That's pretty cool. Well, I mean, some of the, like, let's say the World War II version of Call of Duty or World at War. I know there are Call of Duty iterations that they occur in World War One, World War II. Um, I would imagine there there could be some some benefit, some PR benefit and, and educational benefit for the military to have games like that out there that really showcase some of the successes and also are realistic in, in certain ways, obviously not like respawning and stuff, but, um, I, yeah, it's, I, I always think there's kind of an opportunity there. It's, it's almost like, why doesn't the U S army put out like army, the video game and you like learn what it's like to, I don't know, go into boot camp and rise to the ranks or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they put out in, I think it was 2004, they put out America's army, which didn't get into, like the realm of what you're talking about, it was very like it was really fun, but it was very much a America's Army. Like it'll be cool, and like it's like Call of Duty, man. And it was a really fun, but it was mostly a recruiting tool as opposed to say a edge. Got it. But like when I've been on base, even when I was um, an 88 Mike, we had these huge um, simulators that they used to emulate the feeling of being in all of this different heavy equipment and transporting different things and. It was cool because you would be in this one situation, uh, you know, like like this this type of road, like whether it's developed or not. It would be this material. It would be this weather. You would have this type of load, and it would be situated in different areas of your vehicle. And all of these changes would make how you like the handling actually different. Um, and you did that before you actually got in the real thing, which I don't blame the army for doing it all because I think each one of those vehicles. Is you know, $900,000. So they're like, let's have them play the video game first before they just jump in. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I'm just thinking about, you know, in a lot of sports games now, in addition to actually playing NFL football or, or playing FIFA soccer, they have the whole manage a team component now where it's like, oh, now you're a manager. Now you draft. Now you do public relations. And in WWE wrestling games, it's the same thing. You like you draft. You almost like micromanage budgets in those games. And it's it's almost like, uh, yeah, for the military, because being in uh, that branch of military isn't just about all the things that you're doing on the field and out there, but some of the officer roles and everything involve like allocating resources and managing and choosing where to deploy certain things. And it's like, I wonder why there's not like a like a military management simulator like uh, component in some of those games because people seem to be into that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, from my background, just from my experience, like, I think it sounds, not to say it isn't fun and utterly rewarding. It's one of the, like, best things I feel like I've done in my life. But it's also just living in Excel spreadsheet land. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is what you I'm know? saying. This is what yeah. I'm saying. I don't know. Uh, that that's that's really cool. I have a question about sound design. You talked about composing, sound design, implementation. Where does voice acting fall into that? That would be in again, if someone's saying like I do composing or implementation or sound design, that would probably fall in under the sound design person. Um, but yeah, there there's a whole bevy of different techniques and whatnot for um, guiding talent 
from a creative standpoint, also from a more execution standpoint, um, certain tips and tricks such as having fruit in the studio. So if someone's getting a lot of lip smack when they're speaking, you just say, you should eat an apple and it moisturizes the lips and it reduces the amount of lip smack sounds, things like that. Um, and then there's also the editing aspect as well of knowing that you had, you know, you've got five words and two words from this take are good, two words from this other take and one word from this other one and slicing and dicing them all together in such a way to where it sounds like one coherent. I do that a lot in podcast land. Yeah. 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 Like a lot, a lot of retakes. Yeah. Lots of crossfades. Lots of crossfades. <laughs> yeah. A whole lot. So let's say Blizzard Activision calls you up and they say, we want you to work on the next World of Warcraft expansion. We want you to do some sound design stuff. So then presumably they'll need a bunch of voice actors. Would they, very, very hypothetical, like probably would, would they have the voice actors in and then like you get in there and you're kind of directing and guiding them too? Or would it be the directors and the producers working with the voice actors and then sending you a bunch of files and then they're like, do something with it? So I, I don't want to... I want to stay in my lane on this just because I haven't worked at a company like Activision Blizzard. Like that's a wonderful, fantastic exception to how most games are made. It's, it's wonderful what they've done. They have a dedicated voice actor for each important character. And I, I don't know how they organize things creatively in their office, but I'm sure it's awesome. Russell Brower is an amazing human being at what he does. Um, but I know on the smaller indie and mid-level side that... Most of the time, you'll have an actor or two or three, and they're probably playing multiple characters. And in the sessions that I've had, I've received kind of direction and references from the creative lead or other members of the team. But when it comes down to the session itself, it's usually just me and that other and the voice actor. And we go through that process together. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because there's a lot that goes into all this stuff. And like with an explosion, you can build an explosion in your sound laboratory that you have. But with a voice, you've got to have a voice that someone's saying, you know, someone's using their voice. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. So. Yeah. Well, and they're, they're the vast majority of the time, they're the only person that's going to nail that voice, nail that aesthetic. Yeah. Like if you find something that works, it's not like you can find something else that's pretty close. Right. Like pretty close is miles away from what you need. In voice acting, yeah. I love yeah. watching the clips on YouTube of, you know, the three or four worst voice acting in video games of all time. Mm -hmm. They're just so cheesy and bad. And you're like, who, how did this, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. Nothing'll take you out of a game faster than that. So for your, your teaching, are you seeing any changes over time in the way students are approaching games or sound design? In, I know it hasn't been that long, but games seem to be evolving so rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, any, what are the biggest changes over the last couple of years? In, in like the students or just in the industry? In the students and the industry, I suppose. I would say the... So I've, I've only been doing it a couple of years. Yeah. But I would say that they're just getting more excited and, and they're getting more excited to be doing audio for. Um, I think a lot of people that were getting into games before just wanted to get into games and not specifically audio, but at least at DePaul, now I'm starting to see a lot of students that are saying, I'm here in the game program because I want to do game audio, not oh, this is a class that I should be aware of, so I'm going to take it. A lot of people that are excited about 
being an audio specialist, which I'm really excited about because then you get kids that get excited and nerd out about it the same way that I do. And we have just last week, I took some animations for the Western themed card combat game I'm working on. And for it, all we had was the animation for the ability. We didn't have any other influence um, because that's what I was given. And I said, all right, you're the sound person. Here's the ability. Here's what the ability is, like the title of it. What does this sound like? And I think a lot of people take for granted that audio is just very informed because most of the times that we see it, it's someone has made a lot of mistakes and thought a lot about what they're hearing to give you the audio that's there. Most of the things that we hear, the audio is matched to it very well. And it's just totally eye-opening for some of these kids the first time that they're only given so much information and it's, you have to come up with what there is. And a lot of them just get so excited by that opportunity. It's really, really an open question right yeah. there. Yeah, because uh, there's no, no right answer. Yeah, that's quite a challenge. Yeah. Do you think um, there's more excitement around music just because people are maybe seeing the success of, um, of other game music composers and hearing really great music in games? Because, I mean, I'm on Spotify. I listen to, like, Zircon. Uh, composed a lot of video game music, and uh, the guy that did the music for Risk of Rain, Chris something, Christoph or something like that. Um, and of course, like the Final Fantasy concerts, I went, I'm going to the symphony again in September when they come back for Distant Worlds. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love that stuff. The Zelda Symphony, the, the video games live. Do you think it's just a... Because there's always been, for very many years, there's been really good video game music, but you know maybe it was just a visibility thing? Yeah, I well, if you are a part of that community and you are just embedded in that world like it's it's really a a really large community and but it's I don't want to say it's primarily based online but that's where just a lot of that activity happens that's where a lot of those conversations happen but I think it's growing enough to where even those that aren't living on discord servers or reddit or you know whatever social media all the time are really beginning to take notice and much more than a, oh, that's cool, but a, no, this is really engaging, fantastic. It rivals Hollywood scores and I want to get involved. Cool. What are you playing these days? Oh, um, right now I'm playing two things. So I'm, I'm just a huge Heroes of the Storm fan. That, yeah. That's, that's my MOBA. <laughs> that, that's it. Um, uh, I also just finally unlocked Falstaff, which... I'm like, how did I not have this hero before? But I finally got him, so now I'm like learning how to play him. Um, but then the other game that I'm playing right now is called The Cursed Forest, which is really a, a smaller indie title, but it's the it's much more of an experience as opposed to a game. Like it's not try and do a or get to a certain place. It's to me, it comes off as the this is the developer's kind of experimentation hub for we're going to put someone in a creepy forest and we're going to experiment with all the different ways in which we can scare someone as they're moving through a forest environment. And it seems very experimental in that way because you, for all of these different areas, you start in a main kind of like central point and then you get a map that shows you you can go down this path, that path, or that path. And each path is a different experience, but it's all meant to scare you in one way or another. 
Um, you love the horror genre. I, I do. That that's that's where I like to live. Yeah, <laughs> darker, more aggressive aesthetics. That's that's my jam. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it it comes off almost similar to um, almost to PT in a certain way because I felt like PT again was you have this recurring idea of going through this hallway over and over again, but then the ways in which that hallway is presented to you slightly changes and the way in which you get scared is slightly different. And it turns into, again, a, a almost like a game experiment in scaring someone and an experience as opposed to what we traditionally think of a game, which is you have an objective and whatever that is. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's not a walking simulator, though, kind of? Yeah, but I think a lot of walking simulators also tend to have a strong narrative element to it. Um, like, I just played The First Tree recently, which is totally a walking simulator, but it's also beautiful and tells this really fantastic story about this boy coming of age and his relationship with his father. Cursed, for it doesn't, Cursed Forest <laughs> doesn't have that. It's just, you don't need an explanation other than you're just in this forest now and you are walking through an experiment, like, we're experimenting with how we can affect you. Yeah. Uh, and I find that really interesting. And although I'm only so far through the game, so if this the, the, a huge narrative element does pop up, like I don't want to sell it short, but that's my experience so far. Very cool. Very different from Heroes of the Storm too. Oh yeah, totally. I think the last time we spoke, I had just deleted Hearthstone because, and anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows I used to be obsessed with Hearthstone, but I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, this is sucking my life away. Every time I have my phone in my hand, I'm playing Hearthstone. But I then I pivoted a couple months later to Heroes of the Storm with some friends. I'm bad at it. What's your What's your favorite hero? No idea. I couldn't even, <laughs> you know, I like the, the, the lady with the axes, Sonia something. Oh, Sonia. Sonia, yeah. I think. Yeah. Sonia was, Sonia's legit. There's a couple other ones, but no, I'm very, very bad at it. Uh, apparently, you're not supposed to just run into uh, groups of like three opposing champions. When you're by yourself. When you're by yourself. Yeah. No, that's Guess usually. That's, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Not a, not a recipe for success most of the time. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, no, I did okay. I did okay with a couple games, but, it, but it's been a couple minutes, but I just got Risk of Rain 2. Uh, the open beta. Have you played Risk of Rain? I haven't. Should I check it out? I, it, if you like roguelikes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, risk, the first. See, the problem is the first Risk of Rain. It was by an indie company. Phenomenal side-scrolling roguelike. Um, the, and the graphics and the sound. I think sound. I always think of sound for that because the the soundtrack's phenomenal and it gives you the backgrounds are really deep, so it gives you this really cavernous like lone environment feel like super metroid mm -hmm. i would compare it to um okay. but but more pixel art but the thing with the original game is it didn't have dedicated servers so you had to link directly with your ip with other people and have them dial into your computer so every time my friends and i wanted to play we had to mess with our router settings and get our dynamic ip and our static ip and like mm. send it and all that and it always took like 10 15 minutes to set up um, but supposedly Risk of Rain 2 has dedicated servers, but they went 3D with it. So uh, they did what Super Metroid did with Metroid Prime, I guess. It's kind of a more of a shooter. Kind of thing. Got it. That's good if you like roguelikes. I'll check it out. I always have a mixed feeling towards, um, I don't know, the greater accessibility of games. First of all, I think it's fantastic. Everyone should know that they exist. And they're wonderful, amazing pieces of art. But... I can't say that there isn't something really great about making it 
kind of difficult to get involved at the same time. It's uh, like if like you and your friends, you had to really want to do this, right? Yeah. And if it was someone who's really not that passionate or like really into it at all, they'd give up. So it means that like the communities that I think spring up when it is that difficult to get involved are just really tight knit. Yeah, like Smash Brothers Melee. Mm-hmm. Had to play that in person for the mm. 18 years it was a competitive game mm-hmm. before Evo finally dropped it and ruined everyone's <laughs> life. Oh, poor Smash Brothers Melee fans. And that's been my other obsession, Smash Brothers Ultimate. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Nintendo's online infrastructure uh, could always use a little bit of improvement, but, man, man, I play that game a lot. It's like I get home from work. What do I want to do? I want to destroy someone with a giant sword as Ganondorf. Well, I'm glad that you get some time to play because before we stepped in here, you were telling me about how busy you are. So I'm glad you get some time to do it. I mean, the nice thing about the Switch is I can carry it anywhere. Uh, there you so go. Believe me. I, I, yeah, I also actually picked up Civilization Six on my Switch for a flight that I had. Okay. Because I'm like, all right, be in the sky for three hours. What can I play offline? Mm-hmm. Oh, this this game. Mm-hmm. So, variety of games. Sorry, I know that was a tangent from every all of our expertise, but it's a video game podcast. So. I feel like this whole thing has just been a series of tangents, but that's good. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, no, this is great. And again, um, you can find Elliot's website at Ramova Music. That's R-A-M-O-V-A. And you can find Unlock Audio at unlockaudio.com, which is very convenient. And of course, you can always sign up for one of Elliot's classes at DePaul University. Yeah, come learn with me. It'll be fun. Under Professor Callaghan. You know, kids ask me all the time, like, what a, what what should I refer to you as? <laughs> They're like, do you want Professor, Mr. Callaghan? I'm like, Elliot's fine. Really? Yeah, as long as I know you're talking to me and not like working into some disparaging comment, it's fine. <laughs> like, if someone says, yo, dude, then, I, then I'm all right, you can't, can't go that far, mm. but Elliot's perfectly fine. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, all right then. I will stick with that then. Cool. Well, Elliot, thanks so much for joining me. This was super fun and uh, we'll have to check in another year or two and see what you've been up to. Sounds great, Cody. I look forward to it. Thanks again for having me. Mm-hmm.